you're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and this week, another special guest, uh, Jill Cicerelli, and uh, she has written an awesome fermented food book, and she's here to talk about it today. How are you, Jill? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So you had contacted me about your your new book that is going to be released. We're, we're pre-recording, but this is going to be released the day after this podcast goes, goes yes. live on August 6th, correct? That's right. That's right, August 6th. And I did contact you because one day, I don't even remember how, but I discovered this podcast and it was like discovering a gold vein. I was so excited. I thought, my gosh, somebody has an entire podcast devoted to fermented food. How did I not know this? Oh my gosh, I was thrilled to find it. So it sounds like you like to geek out and learn as much as you can about fermented foods then? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Obviously, I wrote this book. I mean, I do consider myself a geek on the topic. Well, what, what is the, what's the name of the book and uh, what's the general synopsis of it? The book is called Fermented, A Four-Season Approach to Paleo Probiotic Foods. And the gist of the book is meant to be a beginner's guide. It is, um, I mean, while I do consider myself a fermentation geek and I like to experiment, this is really geared towards somebody who may not know anything or very little about fermentation, somebody who is a little afraid to wade into the waters of fermentation. Um, I split it into two specific categories, two specific parts. The first being a, a breakdown of a lot of different types of ferments. And the second part being a cookbook where you can put into practice some of the basic ferments, but it's definitely geared towards the person who loves fermentation or is very interested in fermentation, but may not be the, the most well-versed fermenter out there. Okay. Well then we'll, we'll die. I figure we can dive more into the book, but first just, I guess everyone comes at it differently. What brought you into fermented foods? Um, well, I've always been very adventurous in the kitchen. I do like not, not just with fermentation, but just, I just like to, try new things and new cooking techniques. And that's always just been something I've been very, very interested in. And I, I kind of came at fermentation in a very odd way. I read a lot about it. I knew a lot about it, but I didn't actually ferment anything. And it wasn't because I was afraid it was, which I think a lot of people are that I think bacteria scares people, but, um, it was because I didn't. I th- I thought erroneously thought that you needed a lot of room, a lot of equipment. You needed a a basement or a garage or a, or a cool place to store things. And I live in a high rise, so I I don't have a basement and I don't have a garage and I don't have a heck of a lot of room. So I thought I I have to be very judicious with the kinds or the amount of kitchen equipment I. I include in my collection. And I, like I said, erroneously, erroneously assumed that I would need a lot of stuff and space that I didn't have. So I read a lot about it. I was, you know, studying how to ferment things and talking to people who did it and was kind of jealous of what they were doing. Um, 
yeah, I never really tried it myself. I was very interested in doing it, but figured it wasn't for me. And one day, one my friend Liz, who I um, work out with, offered me a kombucha scoby and said, "Here, why don't you why don't you try this? Uh, if you're interested, I have an extra." And I said, "You know, I I really don't have all the equipment. I don't want all the equipment. I don't have the space." And she said, "Hey, you don't need it. You just need a glass jar, and you're you're set. So if you want it, it's yours." And she's the one who actually got me started with hands-on fermentation. So your route, road in was kombucha. Yes, which is my first ferment and my first love. It's my favorite. Ha- have you met anyone else that? I mean, I guess I when I you're the first person that I know that that's that's their first one because I think when. For people that are afraid of of fermenting to begin with, that when you're dealing with the scoby, a kombucha scoby, that can sometimes be a little freaky to uh, someone that's not familiar with it as well. I, I mean, have you met anyone else that that's been their inroad, or is no, usually food? Actually, yeah, usually it's sauerkraut. That's or or <laughs> yogurt or something. No, I I haven't met anybody else who th- their first foray into kombucha or into fermentation has been kombucha. Although I try, once I got into it and really started to love it, I tried to convert people to say, Hey, I have a million scobies now. Why don't you try to start making your own kombucha? So I tried to convert people and I tried to get them to be fermenters and have their first ferments be kombucha. But, um, yeah, you're right. People are a little intimidated by the scoby, I think. Yeah. Which they're just, they don't know what they're missing. I mean, they need, a, they need to give it a try. Yes. So then it sounds that even like you're just kind of inspired to share this with other people, uh, with your kombucha, trying to get other people to do it. I, is that kind of the inspiration behind the book as well? You just want people to do this? Or did you have any other inspiration for writing the book? Well, um, I'm a health coach. So, of course, the the health benefits of fermentation were something that I'm very interested in and promoted with my clients. But, um, yeah, I was just so excited because I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm making this delicious drink and you can flavor it any way you want. And there's a lot of room for artistry. And I was really into it. So, yeah, I the book actually started off as a what I intended to be a kombucha ebook. I was going to self-publish this little kombucha how to guide and just say, hey, you know, download this for $1.99 or whatever, and I'll help you with step-by-step. Because a lot of feedback I was getting from people was, oh, it seems so complicated and I'm a little bit intimidated. So I thought, well, if I do this and I can sell it off of my my website and just make a couple of bucks, that would be good. And while I was in the middle of that is when I got approached by a publisher to – write a book just about kombucha making. And they asked, my publisher asked, can you write, you know, at least 200 pages on the topic? And I I think you probably can write 200 pages on kombucha if you get into the history and really deep into the science, which I admit up front, I'm not a scientist. So um, I was not confident about writing 200 some pages about kombucha. So I said, how about we expand the topic to fermentation and in general and other types of ferments, obviously kombucha included, but, um, and they liked the idea and we went with it. Now going from an ebook on kombucha to a full fledged published book on 
all kinds of ferments. Did you, did you know what you were getting into when you signed up for this? I mean, was it more work than you expected or, or, or how did you go about developing these ferments? Um, yes, it was more work than I expected. I, I, I'm likening it, the whole experience, the whole book writing experience to having a baby from what I've heard. I'm not a mother myself, but, um, it was, it was a very dramatic year that writing this book. I mean, it was, I think no matter what the topic is, if you haven't written a book before, it's kind of a difficult task. I mean, it sounds so glamorous. Let write this book. I felt, yay. Oh my gosh, how cool I'll be an author. And then when I sat down laptop on lap, blank screen in front of me, cursor flashing, I thought, what have I done? What have I gotten into? So yeah, I had to break it down and I had to seriously think about the types of ferments that I had start to, started to experiment with and enjoy, and I approached it, um, like I said at the beginning, as a beginner's first foray into fermentation, and I thought, well, how did I come to find out about these things, and what did, what questions did I have, and what do, what did I need to learn the hard way, maybe, that I can put in this book, and that's how it grew from just a kombucha ebook to a, a, a full-fledged physical book. And that's what, if, if I understand uh, correctly, I mean, that's, that really is what that part one is, is that intro to everything and, and getting people comfortable. I mean, is, is, is that kind of um, what your, your intent is with that? Is it, it's, you know, someone doesn't really doesn't have to have, from what I've uh, been reading of it, someone really doesn't have to have any information about fermentation. They don't have to have listened to, you know, all 32 episodes of, of, of firm up and, and to get started with what you have here, you start at right. the basics, correct? That's right. And that's exactly what I intended. I thought if somebody had never opened up a book on fermentation, if they don't have a copy of wild fermentation or the art of fermentation or, or, um, you know, any of the other famous resources out there on the topic, what would they need to know? What did I need to know when I started? And you know, I was just like, I think a lot of people where I thought, I don't want, I don't feel comfortable with letting something grow on my countertop. That's a little contrary to what I've always heard is healthy. So why is this healthy? And I'm a little bit afraid. So I wanted to build up people's confidence. And I wanted them to say, hey, it's okay. But at the same time, I also wanted it to work for people who maybe did have a little bit of experience with fermentation, because something I totally love about the craft of fermentation is that it's so individualized and personalized and it's, it's something that anybody can do and put their own flair onto and make it their own. So I wanted things to be very basic in this first, in the first part and say, you can start with simply a cabbage and some salt, or you can take it in many different directions and make it your own. So while, yes, I wanted to build up people's confidence, I thought, well, not everybody is going to be a total noob at fermentation. So I was hoping to maybe build up people's confidence so that they could put their own artistic imprint on their ferments. Well, and that's the one of the first things that I, I found uh, opening up the book was seeing that you know, I, I've, I've, I've looked at other introductory books on 
fermented foods and more advanced books. And the nice thing about this is I can flip through here and see recipes using ferments that I have never tried before or that I wouldn't have even thought of. Um, and so, so that really is an aspect of the book that I feel is important to point out is that there are a lot of, uh, well, for one photos to really, uh, pull a person in, but also the, uh, these recipes that are kind of like what, what you can d- different ways, to flavor kombucha or things to make with them. Um, and that's, that's where I really see it's, it's possible for someone that has fermented for years can even get a lot of benefit from this. Uh, is that from your, it, your experience? Had you just naturally been doing all of those kind of things with ferments from the beginning or was that part of that year of, of uh, creating the book is, is coming up with a lot of these recipes and experimenting? Um, It was half and half. I mean, when I, before the book, when I first started getting into fermentation, something that drew me to it was, Oh, okay. I have this recipe or this loose how to on how to make, this or that, but what if I tried this little twist on it? Or what if I tried adding this or subtracting this? Um, so yeah, I had gone down the road on my own, but then whenever the books started to happen and I was charged with this task, I thought, well, I'm really going to get experimental and really try to, to go in a different direction that maybe I would have at a slower pace had I not had the book to do. Um, but yeah, I kind of put the gas, put my foot on the gas a little bit, put the gas pedal down and really tried to think of different ways, um, to do different ferments or different flavors that would go together. And yeah, so I started down the road, but I think I probably went a little faster because of the book than I would have had I not had the, had the job of the book for the last year. Definitely. Yeah. I can, I can relate to that doing this podcast. It's I, I definitely, you know, do do way more ferments, read way more than I would have if I wasn't doing this directed sharing with other people. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is my, this was my job for the last year. And this, this podcast is something that you have going on and it's, it's a reason to, to get experimental and it's a reason to try a lot of different things. And I mean, I, I was very cognizant of, if someone reads this book, they're going to say, well, you, you've tried this and you've done this and you've had success with this. So I'm going to try it too. And a lot of people don't want to strike out on their own. They want to try something that's tried and true first. Sure. And that's what I thought. Well, I'm, I'll try it. And then if it works, it works. And then they can try it exactly as written or they can take it in their own direction. Well, and that gets me thinking though, you, you say you live in a high rise. So you don't have a basement. You don't have uh, uh, the same kind of storage as someone uh, you, you might have if uh, they weren't living in a high rise. So did you have a lot of these going at the same time over that period of year? And, and you know, did you did you have enough room for for living or did you have a section of all these things or, or was it taking up a lot of space? Because obviously you were doing this till more extreme than necessarily someone is every day. Right. Yes. There were jars everywhere. <laughs> okay. um some of the photos in the book in fact on the the back and in near the table of contents there's there are pictures of jars just sitting on a windowsill and when 
Bill Staley, who was the my friend and photographer who took all the, the photos in the book, when he would come over, we would do, you know, 15 or 20 different setups of different foods. And so I had to have them all ready at the same time. And these, those shots with jars and plates and whatever sitting on the windowsill were just things that we had photographed already. And I was setting aside to address, you know, later on that day to clean up or to put back in a jar or whatever. And he took some really cool pictures of just how much I had going on at once at a couple of different shoots. So yeah, it, it, it took over, it took over our little condo here. There were jars everywhere. There was cabinets full of things and it got, a, it, it got kind of crazy. My husband is so patient. I mean, he was just working around jars and we were living around jars, but yeah, like you said, that's not normally how I live. I mean, I have a, a several ferments going right now, but not anything like that. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of things happening at once. Now I have to I have to ask. Uh, be, uh, I at least know in my experience, sometimes when I do have a lot of things going, I'm not always the most. Um, you know, maybe sometimes I forget a jar or you know something uh, doesn't quite turn out the way I, I wanted. Uh, because I have too much going on and I'm not organized enough, I guess. Uh, do you have a system for, for having kept all of those organized or did you have uh, mishaps happen as well? Um, a couple of mishaps, a couple of things that I had forgotten about for an extra a couple of days or a week where I thought, oh, this is not, I wanted to, you know, seal it off and put it in the refrigerator before it got to this point. And yeah, a couple of mishaps, but um it helped that I knew that Bill, the photographer, was coming over on a certain date. So I had an endpoint and I was, you know, lists of things that I had to make and when I had to start them so that they would be, to my liking, finished on a, at a, on a particular date. So I had to be more organized than I really am in my real life. I mean, I'm, I'm a little loosey-goosey with my own personal ferments, but when it, writing this book, I had to be a little bit more organized and list oriented than I normally am. Hey, that, that definitely sounds like it, it, it'd be good for me to even do when I'm not doing a lot of ferments is I should, I should probably keep better track of a lot of the things. Um, do you keep a fermentation log? You know, I do. And I don't, I mean, I'm not consistent enough with it. So I'd say no, yeah. I, 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 I mean, because again, a lot of this is, learning experience. I am not always looking to replicate something because I'm always trying new things or trying it a little different. Uh, so I could learn a lot from keeping a log. And I know that that's something I've, I've heard before. I've read before, uh, in many different things, not just fermented foods, but just trying to, uh, progress and become better at things. So, so you do have a log then, uh, even, even in, even post writing of the book. Yes. Although post writing of the book, I admit my log isn't maybe as organized as it ought to be. Maybe like you or I'll, I'll jot things down and put dates down. And sometimes I even try to set a little reminder in my calendar on my phone to say, Hey, check on this or taste this. I don't always do it as accurately and as consistently as I should. Maybe, you know, maybe you and I are in the same boat there, but, but yeah, that was something that did help while I was writing it is that I had to, keep a pretty detailed log. I mean, things still fell through the cracks, but having a log helped. 
Well, and and it would have probably helped if I had had a log because in some of our previous uh, contact uh, a few months ago, I think you had shared with me a few of the things in the book before I had seen the book. And I had this great uh, or grand plan of, you know, doing some of the fermented uh, meat or at least one of the fermented meat recipes in your book. And then the next thing I know, it's coming up quickly and the fermented meats take a, a little bit longer. And so I didn't actually get that done, uh, which I was disappointed in because I wanted to at least do one of the recipes out of the book. Um, but the one thing that a really, well, for one, stands out about the book is that it's a beginner's book that we already have kind of emphasized has a lot of things for non-beginners as well. But you also have fermented meats. What was the what was the idea behind adding the fermented meats? Because that, if if you're going to talk about something that people are going to be fearful of, that seems like it'd be more See, of something. Yeah, I'm fearful. You should be fearful when you ferment meat. Not to the point where you don't do it, but I mean, there's a lot to think about. If you if you if a batch of kombucha goes sour, there's it's okay. If you mess up meat fermentation, yeah, that can get be very serious. So, um, well, the, the subtitle, if you will, to the book is a four season approach to paleo probiotic foods. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm a health coach and the, the, the protocol that I use with my health coaching clients is the paleo diet is ancestral eating. Um, I myself am a paleo eater and one of the hallmarks of paleo eating for better or for worse is we're meat people. We're meat lovers. Um, you know, we're, it's, it's not an all meat diet, although some people I think might want it to be, but it's not. Sure. And I thought if I'm going to put the word paleo on this book, meat has to be in it. Um, I admit that that was the part of the book that I was most nervous about. I mean, I was very, before the book, I was very adventurous with all these other types of ferments. Um, but meat ferments was something I had to learn in the middle of writing this book. And I thought it, it has to be in there or else it wouldn't be truly be a paleo book. Meat and paleo go hand in hand. Yes. So then it, it I mean, it, that, which makes complete sense. And did you, did you have any, um, any challenges yourself? doing the fermented meats other than just the initial fear, because you laid out in the book pretty clearly a lot of these different things. I mean, uh, beyond the fear, once you actually get into it and if you follow the directions, is there anything for people to, to be worried about? Um, no, I think, you know, people have been doing this for fermenting meat and, you know, for centuries. So as long as anybody who's experimenting with these types of ferments is very, particular and diligent. I don't think there's anything to worry about. Um, I make people take a little vow that if they suspect something's wrong, then they need to, you know, pull the plug on the, the whole project. I, the last thing I want is someone to, to get sick or, or worse. So, um, no, it's, it's something that you need to just be on top of. It's, uh, it's not, it's not, uh, some, it's not a casual ferment. It's not something to be taken lightly. And as I think as long as people approach it very seriously, it can be a, an extremely delicious hobby. And I mean, I, I enjoyed very much the fruits of the, of my labor and with the meat chapter. So I say go for it. Well, and even if people aren't 
looking to or aren't ready to ferment meats themselves. I mean, you have a, a, a wonderful section in the book that clarifies uh, a lot of the different or the, the specific differences between nitrates and nitrites and natural alternatives. Um, and would you feel comfortable kind of just giving a brief overview of those those differences? Because I think even for someone that doesn't uh, ferment their own meats, but but enjoys fermented meats and is looking at it from health or other aspects, those ones still get kind of confusing for a lot of people. I feel the you mean the difference between or what nitrates and nitrites are? Yeah, and then and then you talked about the celery in there, and and a, a, again, just very brief, but it just to kind of give a hint of 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 that section. Yeah. Um, to to cure meat, it doesn't not necessarily require um, sodium nitrate or sodium nitrate, which are two compounds um, that a lot of people who cure their own meat and ferment their own meat use to, uh, it's, it's sort of like a chemical insurance policy. You know, they, it, it, it uh, enables the, the kind of bacteria that, that you want to culture in your ferment to grow. And it for sure kills the kind of bacteria and spores that you do not want to grow. Um, the bad thing about this is the kinds of sodium nitrate and sodium nitrates that are often used in cured meats and fermented meats, um, are chemically derived. They're made in a lab. And I even have a couple of pictures in the book of what it looks like. I mean, when, when you buy it by the bag from a, a butcher shop or a charcuterie, um, supply store, it's bright pink. It, it doesn't look like anything natural found in out there in the wild. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's meant to be a chemical insurance policy to ensure that what you do ferment, um, stays edible. Um, there's, there was some research done for many, many years about how these things could be because they're, you know, made in a lab, they could be carcinogens and a lot of people eschew these things in their diet. They say, you know, I don't want to eat too much bacon, or if I do, I, I want to make sure it's nitrate-free, nitrate-free. Um, however, the interesting thing is that sodium nitrate, sodium nitrite, uh, is naturally occurring. Our bodies produce it. It's found in natural things. And like you mentioned, celery. Celery has um, a lot of sodium nitrate and nitrite in it. So... When you see fermented or cured meats that you're buying in the store that are labeled, you know, nitrate free or healthy or whatever, they they aren't necessarily completely free of of these substances. They are often um, free of the lab derived versions of the substance. But if you look on the the package ingredient list, almost 100% of the time you're going to see celery juice, celery salt, or something like that. It's, it's just a more natural source of these substances. They're still in there. They're still doing what they need to do to help cure and ferment the meat. Um, but it, they're not using the stuff that comes from the chemistry lab. They're using, you know, ground up celery or juiced celery. Um, for short-term meat ferments, like I have a um, corned beef recipe in the book, uh, it's not even necessary. I have a recipe for using sodium nitrate, nitrate salt blend. And I have another recipe where you use, um, celery, juiced celery or blended up celery. 
Um, but it's not even necessary to use it for shorter term ferments like a corned beef. One thing that these salt compounds do provide is that that characteristic pink look to fermented meat. I mean, it, it, you can make a corned beef without using celery juice or, or ground up celery or sodium nitrate nitrite blend. Um, but it might turn out to be a little bit gray. It, it's perfectly edible. It's perfectly good to eat, but it doesn't visually look as appetizing. And if you're going to serve it to other people who may not be familiar with this, it, it, it can turn people off. So yeah, it's, uh, it's something that people have to make a decision about on their own. Um, I've talked to many people who want none of this in their diet. They want to still ferment meat and not use it. Okay. I I wanted to put in the book that that's possible, but you need to know the risks of that. Um, some people say, Hey, you know, it's a natural substance. I'll you, I'll go with the celery version. That's great too. Um, the only drawback to that is that there's no way to, um, to know the exact levels of sodium nitrate and nitrate that you're getting from celery. It's very, uh, inconsistent from celery stock to celery s- stock. So the most safe way, and this is, always seems to be the case, is if you use some kind of processed food product, which is the, the chemically derived, almost hot pink, you know, salt blend that you buy. So, I mean, I wanted to give options because I know a lot of people go a lot of different ways with their diets. And yeah, that's it in a nutshell, I think. See, and that that's what I, I, I was referring to is that you you really do just break it down. You make it simple for people to understand and then make their own choice. And, and uh, in the fermented meat section, that, that really comes in, in uh, helpful, I think, especially for a, a beginner where that once you get to the fermented meats, it can just be overwhelming, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, and so I, I really do appreciate that you, for one, have that in the book uh, at all, but then all the, the specifics. Um, and and so with the paleo and with the, with, with the meat, um, does – and I might be clashing things here a little bit. So the, the four-season approach, does that have anything to do with paleo style of eating or is – are is the paleo separate from the seasonal? Well, yeah, they're, they're yes and no. They're two different entities, but in my world, and I think a lot of people who are ancestral eaters of some type, those two things overlap. Um, a lot of people who follow the paleo diet or follow a primal way of eating or um, follow the, the, the Weston A. Price um, protocol of eating. Uh, One of the underlying things about that is you eat things that are as fresh as you can get them or as natural and as wholesome as you can get them. And as a result of that, following a four season way of eating, they cut those two concepts kind of go hand in hand. You know, I try not to eat strawberries uh, that I buy, I can buy them in the middle of winter in my grocery store because I know that they probably came from you know thousands of miles away. They were probably picked before they were really ripe. So I personally and a lot of other ancestral leaders, paleo devotees, do try to to eat with the seasons. It's an inexpensive way to eat. It's the healthiest way to eat. It's the 
you get the best food, the freshest food. So a, a lot of people who are following these, these eating protocols are already thinking, I want to eat what's in season. And that's why I thought those two concepts went hand in hand. I mean, certainly this book can be used by people who are not paleo eaters or ancestral eaters. Um, I think I feel that there's a lot of really great information in there that anybody who follows any kind of eating protocol can use. Um, and if just people are interested in eating with the seasons and they don't give a hoot about paleo eating or ancestral eating or primal or anything like that, if they follow, um, you know, the four seasons and want to eat the freshest food, then there's something there for that. So I think of it like a Venn diagram, you know, you have paleo or ancestral eating, you have people who just want to eat the freshest food and there's a lot of overlap in the middle. Okay. And so that does, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it, and it, and I would uh, reiterate that it, uh, not being a paleo specific eater, myself, although somewhere in that Venn diagram of sorts, I, I definitely cross over with a lot of that. Um, it's definitely a, a book that's that, that from what I've been able to, uh, to read of it so far, you're right. It, it really isn't specific. Uh, so anyone listening to this, that isn't a paleo eater, it's definitely not, it's, it's definitely worth still taking a look at because, uh, it, it's not, uh, it's not just for paleo eaters and, uh, uh, and that's something else I appreciate about the book because it's, it's got all those. And so this four season season side of it are a lot of the, the, the recipes, you know, when I, what I think in season, I think of, of fresh and then with preserving is, is allows them to store. So are these shorter recipes overall or are they longer or is the main focus that when you start the ferment, you have the freshest food possible? And then does that make a difference? Do you find in the finished product? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. To a lot of those things. <laughs> for, for, first of all, um, there are a lot of the recipes in the book are for shorter ferments. Um, but there are definitely things in there for longer ferments. Um, but the reason I wanted to break it down into the four seasons was to, to say, you know, like right now I live in Pittsburgh right now, as we're recording this, it's the heat of summertime. There's a lot of really fresh local produce available to me. I really wish somehow I could be enjoying this in four months when it's, you know, November or December and I don't have fresh berries and all of the wonderful produce that my farmer's market has. I want a way to save this and be able to enjoy it later on down the road. And if I'm going to follow this four season way of eating, for instance, right now, summertime, I have my behind in gear and I'm doing a lot of ferments. I'm getting into canning and all of that stuff because I want to be able to take the stuff that's ripe now, take the things that my local farmers are selling right now and things that are freshest right now and do what I can to make sure that I'm enjoying those down the road. And then I'm not, you know, buying food that's, you know, half the half a hemisphere away and it was super expensive and it was gassed somehow to make, make it look right, but it really isn't. My, my approach to not even just to fermentation, but to, to cooking in general is you start with quality and then you can end with quality. I mean, you can buy a tomato in the dead of winter in the Northern hemisphere here, but it's 
mealy, it's white on the inside, it's gross. Um, is it a tomato? Technically, yes, but it doesn't really taste like one. So I want to make sure that I, when I have the good stuff, I'm taking advantage of the good stuff. Yeah, so it's kind of a way to eat seasonally and uh, and, and and stretch out that cheat that cheat the eating of seasonality, but going with the essence of what seasonal eating is being the freshest uh, non-shipped uh, produce. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, a tomato tastes great right now in the, in the height of summer. So I'm, uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm doing what I can to can tomatoes and dehydrate tomatoes and, um, you know, make some fermented salsa and hot sauces. Peppers are in season now. So yeah, I'm taking advantage. So four months from now, it's going to be still good eats around this house. And are all of those recipes and things that you're going to be doing in the book as well? Yes. Yes. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and, and well, do you have, um, you know, anything on the, uh, because the, it's kind of a unique perspective that, that hasn't been a lot of the focus of, of firm up so far as is, is the health aspects of things. Would you like to dive in at, uh, or, or just, uh, a brief overview of, of where the health aspects come into the, the fermented foods and eating. Yeah. This way? Um, I, I have to admit right off the bat that to me, the, the health benefits that come with eating fermented food was secondary, personally secondary. I was interested in being, you know, trying something new in my kitchen and being a little bit experimental. And the more I learned about it, even before I started fermenting, um, you know, the more I thought, gosh, I, I just really have to get into this because it's so good for you. It's just so healthy. And that's something else that I think connects with a lot of people who are currently ancestral eaters or paleo eaters um, or people who are in, even just interested in that uh, that way of eating is the health benefits. You know, of course, we all want healthy guts and we all want our, our good gut biota to be robust and healthy. And yeah, I, I, when I started eating fermented food, the, the changes that I noticed relatively immediately after, I mean, when I, when I first started to incorporate this into my diet, it, it was, it was very fast. I, um, one of the things that was within, you know, a week or two that changed in my life was, um, my skin cleared up. I had very bad skin. I had, you know, along my jawline, I would get breakouts and it just, I just didn't know what to do. And I tried a different, different ways of eating and different, you know, topical creams and blah, blah, like everybody else does. But once I started to pay more attention to my immune system and my gut and started to feed my, my gut a little bit better and take care of the the trillions of bacteria that live in me. Um, yeah, my skin cleared up, my mood changed. And it, it's something that I, I think in amongst the ancestral eating world, especially the people who are new to that, they are coming to realize just how really important that is. Um, you know, there are people out there, I'm sure, who listen to this podcast who are like, yeah, that's old news. But the the more popular these ancestral way of eating protocols become, 
the more people realize, hey, it's not just about fresh vegetables and quality meat. It's about taking care of our immune system, taking care of our gut. And it's something that I introduced into my health coaching practice with my clients relatively short at, shortly after I started to notice how much better I felt. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many really great uh, health benefits to it. Uh, not to get too graphic, but, you know, healthy elimination, everyone needs it. And if you're feeding your gut and you're uh, taking care of, you know, the lower GI area, that can only make your life better. Yeah. And I will say that I, again, I um, am grateful that I haven't needed to focus too much on the, the, the health aspects of, of fermented foods, but, uh, and, and different, uh, you know, eating fresh foods and eating seasonally and different things like that, that I don't even, I kind of just take for granted because I really just enjoy it so much. And it just, it's, uh, rejuvenating and, uh, invigorating and e- e- like eating s- some sauerkraut or kimchi or, or, or drinking kombucha for me, I, and I know it's totally anecdotal, but it, it feels, feels good. It feels refreshing. It's not the same as it, it, like, I don't think I've ever had a processed food and it's, and, and felt wonderful afterwards. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it feels different no matter what the health benefits are. It, it, it just, not only tastes good, but I feel different. Right. I agree. I mean, when I started to clean up my diet and eat in a way that, that is right for me, um, I I felt great. I mean, I couldn't believe how my, my whole world turned around. I was sleeping better. I was in a better mood. I performed better at the gym. I mean, I just, I felt more alive. And then when I added fermented food into that, you're right. It was just, it was almost like, well, I had it, I had myself cranked up to 10, but now when I added this extra, extra thing into my diet, my gosh, everything just became so much better for me. And I just felt so great. And yeah, I agree. I, I don't think you need to be a paleo eater or whatever. I think when you eat just good quality, fresh food, it can be life changing, and whenever you introduce fermented food on top of that, I mean, it just can do so much. Oh yeah, and I'd say whatever direction someone goes, whether they come from eating fresh foods and then going into fermented foods, or if they start with the fermented foods, uh, it, inevitably they're the like I think diet just kind of changes because as soon as a person puts focus on one aspect, be it ancestral, be it uh, seasonal, be it fermented foods. Once there's a focus on one aspect of eating uh, and and heightening eating to more than just consuming, uh, it's inevitable that it will tr- have a trickle down effect for what other ever other aspects of of food a person enjoys. Right, and I think once somebody's you know whatever way of eating is suited you know suited to that person, once they start to value food, once they start to see, um, you know how important food can be and how important taking care of yourself can be, it, it only, it, it just opens doors. I think a lot of people will, will then start to explore even more deeply into different types of food and find out, you know, define and hone what really works for them. And, and only good things can come of that. And, and does your, your book, uh, go into much detail about, uh, about health aspects 
or is that more in the introductory uh, introductory section? Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely I, I, more than just a passing men, mention of uh, the health benefits. Um, I didn't want this to be a, a, a book about bacteria and chemistry. And I think I, I wanted to get to the recipes and get to the how-to because I think that's what really pulls people in. And it... <sighs> I think fermentation geeks like us are really into the the finer details, but because I wanted to gear this towards somebody who, um, you know, may not be as totally geeked out about it as we are, sure. I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make it about, you know, intestinal gut biota and um, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth and stuff like that. I, I wanted to to make mention of that. And definitely introduce those topics, but I I didn't go into enormous amounts of detail. There's definitely info in there about that, however. Yeah, well, I think you've you've got it down with uh, drawing people in at whatever level they're they're interested in. Because just flipping through the the book, I mean, people can just be drawn in if they don't know any, know the difference between a fermented food and a non fermented food. Just flipping through the book and looking at the photos, I mean, that can definitely draw someone in. Just looking at the the pretty bright, colorful photos. I mean, the, a good way to to think about this and, uh, you know, is, I mean, it's just like there's white pages with uh, well-lit, uh, bright food. It just, it makes me want to try these different things. Well, so. that's something um, when I was in the middle of writing the book and when I was working with um, the, the photographer, Bill, is the, the concept that I brought to him was I wanted the book to be less co-op, more Apple store in feel. And, and trust me, I'm a co-op kind of person. I mean, I'm not knocking that, that, um, that way of life because I'm a part of it. However, I think a lot of people who are not fermenters look to people like us from the outside and think there's a bunch of stinky jars in that person's house. And it's, it's not because they don't want to buy into that kind of forgive the expression, quote unquote, crunchy granola lifestyle. They don't want to, they don't want to be a part of it. And they, they discount something as great as fermentation because they, they think it's, it's not, the way they want to live, which is why I wanted to make it something that was really accessible and that looked nice. Something that somebody who doesn't have a basement can still do this. Somebody who, you know, feels that they're a little bit more urbane, maybe, I don't know that this is still something that they can do, should do have within themselves to, to, to conquer and overcome and enjoy I wanted it to have a different feel than a lot of other fermentation resources out there because I, I, I feel like there's a whole group of people who, you know, might shop at a, at an upscale kitchen store and think, Oh, I'm not going to do that because it seems dirty and gritty. And it doesn't, it isn't, and it doesn't have to be. And it's not just for people who, shop at a co-op it's for everybody and it's accessible to anyone whether you're ingrained in a in a co-op lifestyle or not it's accessible to everybody exactly and i and 
I would say, yeah, that's really kind of what the photos do for me is it, it you, you make fermentation, uh, seem clean and, uh, and very approachable, uh, from these photos. And I mean, and in, in reality, I mean, a lot of these photos are very beautiful. So, I mean, if I didn't have anywhere to store my things in a cupboard, I would think as a beginning fermenter, maybe, Hey, I can have my sauerkraut or infused kombucha sitting out on the countertop because it looks pretty. It looks nice. Yeah. Um, I, I I think that's something that people who don't ferment are, I think that, that shies them away from fermentation, that they think it's moldy, stinky jars and it, it doesn't have to be that. And it's, it can be something that you're very proud of. And like you said, you keep out on your counter because it's just flat out pretty. And and sometimes they do kind of get stinky moldy oh, yeah. jars occasionally, but say hey, that's, that's not what the beginner needs to know because as soon as they get hooked, then you can deal with anything else that may come along with yeah. it sometimes. Uh, I, I went to a fermentation workshop years ago and the, and the woman who ran it was fantastic. She had so, so much great information, but she kind of turned the crowd off by saying, you know, I, I, I don't use my living room. I have 50 or 60 jars in there. My cats are crawling all over it. And I thought, Oh, you're just, you're making people think that this is a gross, dirty hobby. And it's not, I mean, it's, this is a wonderful thing. And she was, had such great things to share, but she wasn't, I don't know. She wasn't marketing it right. And she was making people think it was gross and it's not gross. I wanted to say, no, don't say that. You want to tell people how awesome this is. I, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. It tastes great. It can look beautiful and yeah, I agree. More people need to need to see this kind of stuff and, and come from it with whatever, whatever side it is, be it the the eating habits, the health habits, or just being drawn into our cookbooks or, you know, because you got plenty of recipes in here. So I, uh, I definitely think that you, uh, you chose kind of a, a niche here. That's that, that fills a need for, for fermented food books. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I hope people enjoy it. Um, I'm, I said a couple times, you know, this was a crazy year. It was crazy, but as I mentioned before, liking it to have, having a baby in the middle of it, I was like, holy smokes, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. But now that I'm sitting here and I'm holding it in my hands, I think, oh, I would do it all over again. It was so wonderful. Um, I really hope people enjoy it. I enjoyed doing it. Um, yeah, I hope this is not my first fermentation book. I hope I have the opportunity to write many more. Hey, I think once people see this, once it comes out, I think they'll be excited to see uh, future, future fermented books as well. Fingers crossed. And then do you have any, are you going to be doing any events around this book in the near future? I am. I, um, I mentioned before I live in Pittsburgh. So right now I have three events that are in my area. So if anyone listening is in the Pittsburgh area, please, please come to one or all of these events. Um, the first one I'm having a, uh, release party celebration and book signing. It's on August 16th. Um, if you're from Pittsburgh, it's going to be in the Lawrenceville neighborhood at the Espresso Amano coffee shop. Um, it's from, that's a Friday. It's from six to nine. You can come in and have some fermented snacks and have a couple of drinks. I'll sign your book, buy the book there. So that's the first one. Um, I think it's 
September 7th. Am I, th- am I thinking that right? September seventh, I think, is a Saturday. Now I'm starting to black out. Well, huh. if you if since since we're pre-recording this, if you send me the the details about those, I'll make sure they show up in the show okay. notes correctly. As okay, as so they the, should too. The, the first Saturday in September at the Penguin Bookshop in Swickley, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh, um, starting at 10 a.m. I'm doing a, a signing there, and it's in the middle of the their farmers market. So come and buy some fresh in-season food and pick up the book and learn how to ferment it right there. Um, And then on September 14th in Bridgewater, I'm going to be attending a book festival. So I'll be there selling the book and answering questions about fermentation and hopefully handing out little samples of different ferments that I have. And yeah, that's what I have going on so far. Hopefully there'll be a, a few more, but those are three events that I have currently on the books. And then where can people go to uh, to find out more information about you and the book? Um, I run the blog firstcomeshealth.com. It's my health coaching blog. I talk about all kinds of different topics. Um, obviously, fermentation. I talk about recipes. I talk about goal setting, motivation, things that I um, – think my clients will find to be of value, hopefully anyway. Um, but yeah, firstcomeshealth.com is my website and you can get to all of the other social media outlets that I'm involved in, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Google plus everything from that website. So that's a good place to go. Okay. And one other thing I like to, uh, ask guests is, uh, regarding, uh, resources. So even if one resource, obviously your book, everyone should go out and get your book, but do you have any other, um, go-to places for, uh, for fermentation related things, um, that, that you like or would recommend? Yes, I have two. First is the website nourishedkitchen.com. I think that's a fantastic website. Um, it's not solely devoted to fermented food, but there's a lot of stuff about fermented food and a lot of really different, uh, spins on fermented food, you know, making, um, kombucha popsicles and things like that. It's really different and and it's not wild or crazy or or out of touch from the average home cook. It's something that if you're a a casual fermenter, these are very accessible things. So I really love sending people there because I think it's a wonderful website with some really unique things. And the second thing is um, wherever you are, if you have a local uh, food co-op that I have found that my food co-op is a really great place to go to, to meet other people who are into fermentation and have, um, some really unique ideas, but also there is inevitably somebody doing a little class or doing a demonstration of, of some sort. And if there isn't, I would invite people to step up and become that person. So even though I said, you know, I didn't want my book to look like a co-op book. I hope no one took offense to that, but the, the food co-ops are really, really great place to go to meet like-minded fermenters and get some new ideas and, so that wasn't quite very specific, but if people live near a food co-op, it's a de- it's definitely a hotbed of ferment fermentation ideas. Well, yeah, and it's about uh, like so many things food related. I mean, it brings people together. So yeah, uh, it's community. Exactly. Something that I I don't know 
where all of your listeners are from or where they currently live or anything. But I live on the East Coast in a place that's cold for a good percentage of the year. And so fermentation here in Pittsburgh isn't exactly top on everybody's list. I think if you live in California or a lot of places on the West Coast, it's 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 a big deal. And if you're lucky enough to live out there where produce is plentiful and the weather's nice and the weather's consistent and, you know, good for you. But if you're like me and you live in a place where, um, you know, not a lot of people are doing a lot of home ferments, you need to find some like-minded peeps and get together with them and make friends and swap ideas and start to spread the word. Definitely makes a, a huge difference. Um, you know, and, and, and it, and it helps feel less isolated or weird because, well, just looking at your book kind of helps with that too. It makes it look more mainstream or, or normal. So you're not so, so weird, uh, in a fermentation cave making things, but yeah, getting out there and just sharing ideas with other people and, and, and getting other people excited about it. Yeah. If you do kombucha, do like Jill does and, uh, try and convert other people. Right. Uh, I, I definitely agree on all those, those fronts. And, did you have anything, uh, any last bits of, of, of wisdom or things to share? Um, I guess my parting shot, I want to be this. Don't be afraid to start fermenting food. I, I think people, we live in a society where bacteria equals bad and shouldn't be that way. So take the plunge, try something very basic. Um, don't be afraid to, to be experimental. You'll, you'll be very pleased. You'll be very surprised. I also predict you'll be hooked on fermentation very soon. I agree with that. And, and on that note, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. I've loved it. This was the fastest hour of the day. I loved it. I, hey, it flies by. So yes. I mean, that's, that's again, why fermentation is so much fun. So if for some reason you're listening to this podcast and you've never fermented, get, uh, go out and uh, this is a good place to start. The fermented a four-season approach to paleo and probiotic foods. And then you can find any of uh, the uh, the links or resources uh, that were mentioned today in the show notes and you can find those at firmup.com slash podcast slash 33 and then you can also uh, find uh, anything about FirmUp on uh, at Twitter at FirmUp or Facebook at FirmUp and until next time FirmUp FirmUp